Welcome to the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a weekly public affairs broadcast produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Metis Nation, in partnership with the Center for Research on Globalization. Our shows air on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States and are podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we are airing excerpts from a talk called My Jerusalem, Responding to the U.S. Embassy Announcement. My Jerusalem was presented at the University of Winnipeg on February 28, 2018. The discussion included panelists coming from the three great faith traditions, a Jewish rabbi, a Palestine-Canadian Muslim, and a Palestine-Canadian Christian, all of which claim some intimate connection with the historic city of Jerusalem. The occasion for the event was President Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. As we will hear, the move broke with an international consensus that the holy city deserves special distinction as a site that accommodates both Israeli Jews and Palestinians, both Christian and Muslim. The My Jerusalem discussion was sponsored by a number of local organizations, including the Canadian Arab Association of Manitoba, the University of Winnipeg's Global College, Independent Jewish Voices, Winnipeg, the Mennonite Central Committee, Manitoba, and Peace Alliance, Winnipeg, among others. Before the main speaker's presentation, Esther Eptison, a Winnipeg-based MCC representative and trained historian, presented an overview of the historic trajectory of Jerusalem in the Israeli context. Until the end of World War I, Palestine had been for 400 years under the control of the Ottoman Empire. After World War I, Palestine came under British control and it was known as Mandate Palestine from 1920 until 1948. Jerusalem, about six, the population of Jerusalem was about 60,000 in the early 20s. It grew to 160,000 by 1946. That growth was due primarily to Jewish immigration. By 1946, there were about 100,000 Jews, 31 Christians, and 34 Muslims living in the city. Over the years of the British Mandate, tensions grew between Palestinian Arabs, who were longtime residents of the area, Jews, who were largely more recent immigrants, as well as the British administration. Significant violence occurred through the 1930s and the 1940s, some of it perpetrated by Palestinians, some of it perpetrated by Zionist militias, and a good bit of it aimed at the British. So much so that by the end of World War II, Britain was very eager to offload Palestine, and the newly created United Nations established a committee, a special committee on Palestine, to figure out what to do. That committee was headed by none other than Lester B. Pearson. And the committee developed a partition plan, which was passed, brought to the General Assembly, and passed on the 29th of November, 1947, passed by a vote of 33 to 13. The partition plan proposed to divide the land of Mandate Palestine into two states, a Jewish state 
with about 56% of the land, and an Arab or Palestinian state with about 44% of the land. Jerusalem was to be an international zone. And you can perhaps see that little spot right there. That's Jerusalem, an international zone. That was the proposal. A corpus separatum, it was called, to be administered for 10 years by the United Nations, at the end of which time there was to be a referendum to determine the future of Jerusalem. The area for this international zone was actually quite large, significantly larger than the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem under the British. The UN partition plan never went into effect because of the war that ensued. But the important thing about that plan was that through it, the international community identified Jerusalem as a special place deserving of special consideration. British forces left Mandate Palestine on May 14, 1948, and Israel declared independence at midnight that night. Zionist militias had already uh, begun to expel Palestinians from their visit prior to that, but immediately after the declaration, a volunteer army from surrounding Arab countries engaged with the um, Israeli forces, and that war continued through to the end of 1948. This, I apologize for the uh, blur in this particular map. This is what it looked like at the end of that war. Israel was significantly larger and the areas that we would know today, West Bank, Gaza, and so on, were um, West Bank was part of Jordan, Gaza was part of Egypt, and so on. So as the war drew, drew, uh, drew to a close in late 1948, Israeli and Jordanian military generals met and drew a ceasefire line through the city of Jerusalem. It was a rough line. It cut through streets, through neighborhoods. It was not very well planned. It was intended to be temporary, but it actually became part of the armistice line in 1949. So you can see that green line passing through the city of Jerusalem the yellow part, East Jerusalem under Jordanian control, the blue part, West Jerusalem under Israeli control. This seven-kilometer city line, as it was called, um, divided the city uh, with walls, barbed wires, military fortifications, sniper positions. And I should mention that there was a good deal of violence in Jerusalem during those, uh, the months leading up to the ceasefire in November 48. Hardly any Arab Palestinians remained in West Jerusalem. Hardly any Jews remained in East Jerusalem. They were either expelled either direction or they were killed. So much tragedy during 1948. Um, and hence the fortifications and so on. All of the old city was part of East Jerusalem and under Jordanian control. 
So henceforth, Jews were not allowed into the old city. They were not allowed to visit the Western Wall, which is a very important religious site. They were not allowed to visit the Jewish cemetery that was on the eastern part of the outside, the eastern border of the old city. West Jerusalem was named the capital of Israel, but East Jerusalem was not named the capital of Jordan. It was simply East Jerusalem. Through the 1950s, a variety of parties continued to put forth proposals to establish Jerusalem as an international city. Proposals came from the British, from the US, from the UN. So there were parties that continued to hold on to this vision of Jerusalem under some kind of international administration. But it became clear after a number of years that Israel and Jordan were at least reasonably satisfied with the status quo for the time being, and so nothing further happened. Until 1967. In 1967, in a short six-day war in June, Israel gained control of the rest of Mandate Palestine. So that was Gaza, along the Mediterranean, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, that wall along the Green Line came down. People could move around. Jews could visit the Western Wall and the cemetery once again. There was great rejoicing among the Israeli community at the reunification of the city after 19 years of division. Israel took quick action to extend the uh, Jerusalem municipal borders. East Jerusalem was placed under the law, jurisdiction, and administration of Israel. Palestinians in East Jerusalem were granted Jerusalem ID cards. And Palestinians wondered what would this all mean. The UN Security Council took action. It condemned Israel's acquisition of this additional territory through force and demanded that it withdraw from these territories. It also emphasized the need to work for a just and lasting peace in the Middle East in which every state, Israel and its neighbors, could live in security. This action, this UN Security Council Resolution 242, became and continues to be the key UN resolution which defines the international community's stance on Israel's presence in the region. In 1980, the Israeli Knesset passed the Jerusalem law which identified the city as complete and united and as the capital of Israel and it effectively annexed the entire city. This was again criticized by the United Nations as a violation of international law. Some countries had moved their embassies to uh, Jerusalem in the uh, intervening years, but uh, the UN encouraged them to remove their embassies back to Tel Aviv and many of them did so. During the 1980s, 70s and 80s, uh, Palestinian resistance grew, erupting in the first intifada in uh, 1987. 
And it was also during this time that Palestinians increasingly came to regard East Jerusalem as the capital of what they hoped for, their future state. Oslo. In 1993 and 1995, Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization signed the Oslo Accords. This was the first time that Israel and the PLO acknowledged each other and agreed to negotiate a peace settlement. Not a peace treaty, but a framework that would hopefully lead to a peace treaty down the road. Oslo transferred control of major Palestinian cities in the West Bank and Gaza from Israeli military to a newly created Palestinian authority, an interim structure. And the hope was that limited Palestinian self-government and incremental Israeli withdrawal would boost mutual support, and that would empower leaders on both sides to negotiate final status issues. So you can see here something uh, of um, what was called Area ABC, the division of the West Bank there. Uh, the yellow areas in the West Bank denoting Area A, where Palestine, Palestinians had full control. Area B is the green, where there was joint control with, area, uh, with Israeli authorities, and the white area would be Area C, which remained within Israeli control. But this was, at the time it was signed, considered to be a temporary measure. The... Uh, as I indicated, the hope was that by 1999, things would be well on the way and also final status issues would be resolved. And those final status issues were Palestinian refugees, Israeli settlements, borders and security, and of course, the status of Jerusalem. There was much excitement around Oslo at first, but that excitement dissipated over subsequent years. And why was that? because of facts on the ground. Facts on the ground included Israeli demolition of Palestinian homes and villages due to lack of Israeli granted permits, planning systems and so on made uh, the obtaining of building permits extremely difficult for Palestinians, construction of Jewish-only uh, settlements in East Jerusalem and West Bank, all of these, these uh, Jewish settlement building had been going on for some time already, but they, uh, that escalated in the years uh, after Oslo. And then there was also the building of the wall. In 2002, B Israel began construction of a separation barrier through the West Bank and East Jerusalem, 700 kilometers long. It weaves its way through the West Bank, around the West Bank, and also it carves up Jerusalem. It separates Palestinians from Israelis, but also from each other. It cuts off roads and services. It prevents people from reaching their holy places for worship. It harms businesses, and it turns some neighborhoods into ghost towns. In 2004, the International Court of Justice issued a ruling that the wall is illegal, where it's built on Palestinian land, but it still stands. And Jerusalem is more divided than ever. The point of all this is that there's a long-standing international consensus that is Jerusalem is a special place, a place to be shared, 
In the last several decades, there's been a moving away from the idea of, of Jerusalem as an international administrated place, administered place, but it is, continues to be the view uh, that is, Jerusalem should be a place where two peoples embracing three faiths should be able to live and work and to worship and access their holy sites. It's a place whose future should be negotiated between the peoples who live there, Israelis and Palestinians. And so it is this international consensus that has been um, broken by the actions of the uh, Donald Trump administration after many decades. And that's the situation we are in now. So I'll leave it at that. Rabbi David Mifazer has been engaged on Israel-Palestine for half a century. Active with independent Jewish voices in Canada, he sits on the Rabbinic Council of Jewish Voices for Peace in the U.S. and is Rabbi Emeritus of the Ahavet Olam Synagogue in Vancouver, where he lives. Here is some of what he had to say on the subject of my Jerusalem. My second year of university, I went off to Jerusalem for a year of university. And I, I can say now, I think my parents were like just completely bewildered, you know, like where did they go wrong? What happened to this child that they thought they were raising to be a somewhat normal person, you know, went off the path and did this crazy thing. So I went to Jerusalem as a 19-year-old. And, uh, you know, maybe I can just use some references. I had read the book Exodus. Does that mean something to you? I saw the movie, Exodus. I read the book, The Source. Uh, these very kind of romantic images, you know, plus the prayers, plus the Bible, plus all this stuff. And I, I remember the day I got there, I wanted to just walk down the street and like hug everybody. It's like, I'm here, I'm here. I finally like, wow, I'm in Jerusalem. I'm, you know, shalom, shalom, everybody. I'm, you know, most other people weren't feeling that at that particular moment. <laughs> but it was so exciting for me. And it was a great time of discovery. I've, I found it fascinating and fabulous. Part of what it was about for me was feeling myself being part of like the in-gathering of the Jewish people. After 2,000 years, there were you know, there was Jews from Kurdistan, there were Jews from Yemen, Jews from Morocco, Jews from the places like where my great-grandparents lived, like Poland, Russia, whatever. Wow, we're all there. And there was these Palestinians that they lived there like all the time. There were their churches, mosques. And I felt a very, very strong kinship. Uh, I'm not kidding, like my cousins, you know, like, kind of like they stayed, we left and came back, we're all here together, you know, and that was just like overwhelmingly exciting and powerful for me. Um, I lived on the top of Mount Scopus, which actually in one of the maps that you just saw, it was a, a little enclave carved out in the ceasefire, and that the ceasefire was like drew lines in 1949 because the Hebrew University was there. The Hebrew University was founded in 1926 or maybe 24. Albert Einstein was part of it. 
It was part of the Zionist project of creating a Jewish homeland. It was there, it got cut off from the rest of the city. And then in 1967, this heroic war, the Israelis were able to reunify the city. I lived there and I heard songs and poems about literally like sitting on the top of Mount Scopus, dreaming of Jerusalem for 2,000 years. And here I am. I could go on with this for a long time, talking with you, but I don't have so long. I have other memories from that time of my life. I, I, can you tell me how much time I do have? I'm not too good at keeping time. That's how much I've left. That's incredible. Okay. I just want to tell you some other things I remember. I remember one of the first days I was in Jerusalem, walking down uh, Jaffa Road with, you know, stone buildings with stores. Jaffa Road was the main road into the old city of Jerusalem that went down to the sea coast of Jaffa. I imagine that road's been there probably for three or 4,000 years. I imagine it was a very mixed place with Arab shops, Jewish shops. When I was there, it was all Jewish. And there was, I remember, a little boy with a, a bad cut on his hand. His hand was bleeding and he was crying. He was very distressed. And I was a 19-year-old American who had been there for maybe three or four days. I went to this little boy, and I could tell he was an Arab boy. I, I knew like maybe one or two words of Arabic. And he's crying, and there were some policemen. And me, a good American kid, it's like the policeman is your friend, right? If you get hurt, the policeman will help you, of course. So I remember I said, Imshi, Imshi. You know, come, I think that means come with me or something. What? Well, I don't know what it means. I heard people saying it and people started doing it. <laughs> so, so I took this little boy to the police and I said, you know, I, I could speak enough Hebrew. I said, help him. Like, why, don't, why, why aren't you helping him? And this person's like, what are you doing? He's an Arab. Don't you know this is an Arab kid? You know, they use horrible language. You know, Get him out of here. What did you bring him here for? And so that, too, was part of my experience in Jerusalem. I, I, I saw with my own eyes dispossession, literally people being dispossessed from their homes. Living on the top of Mount Scopus, right over the crest of the hill, there's a, a large Arab town called Isawiya. Isa means Jesus. It's a town connected to Jesus' own life. It was a big Arab town, and when I was there, again, 19-year-old naive guy, I knew that Israel just expropriated so much of that land, just took it. Of course, in the Israeli mind, they offered them a fair market price, and the landowners didn't accept it. They didn't want to sell their land. So Israel did what might happen here. What's it called when the government takes land to build a dam or a road. There's a, there's a word for it. Anyway, I saw that happen. The one year I was there, Israel started building these high-rise apartment buildings, almost like a giant tank barrier to plant Jews. So this would never go back to that village, ever. I saw that go on. Something I remember very well was the, the, the Western Wall which is a retaining wall from the time of the temple. 
built by King Herod. We say it's the holiest place in Judaism. It's a place that Jews go and pray. It was called by Christians the Wailing Wall because they thought the Jews were wailing while they're praying. I remember going there many, many, many times and sometimes dancing like ecstatically with other Jewish people being there, feeling like I'm in this place where my ancestors worshipped for, oh, like, you know, literally since the time of the Bible. And to get there, I walked from Mount Scopus on these kind of curving roads down the hills through neighborhoods like Wadi Joe's and Sheikh Jarrah, and that's, that's uh, um, where Idris grew up. I, I was there before you were born, probably, but, but you know, and I rem I, my experience was walking by, and there's, you know, Arab people sitting out on their porch, I don't know what, eating, eating something, or hanging out with their family, you know, saying hello to me as I walked by. And it was, it was beautiful. Um, I felt a lot of, like, goodwill. I felt, I actually felt a kind of a welcome. I said this earlier while we were having dinner. This was four years after the Six Day War, meaning four years after 19 years of division with those barbed wire and the no man's land and machine gun posts, all that was gone. And I, I had this tremendous feeling of optimism, like somehow we were all gonna end up living together. Anyway, I need to speed this up quite a bit. Two minutes, okay. So since then, so much has changed. The dispossession has increased. I, I, I think it's, it's almost shocking to say, but Palestinian existence in Jerusalem, I think, is threatened just little by little, house by house, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood. It's being taken away from them. And at the same time, Israel is building like ring after ring of Jewish settlements and neighborhoods all around it. The places that were first built when I was there, I just told you about, they've been there almost 50 years now. There's like second and third generation Israelis that don't even realize they're new. I, I could talk so much about that. Um, that wall that at that time I thought it was, like, it was like the center of holiness. To me right now it feels like blasphemous to think that those stones are somehow holy and that it's okay to destroy other people's homes, you can dance there. That's, that's just completely backwards. It's a kind of, um, I don't know, I don't have the right vocabulary for it right now, but it's just such an inversion. I've been back to Jerusalem in recent years. I don't, I don't wanna go there. I find for me now, Jerusalem feels like, almost like an insane place, that people are so caught up in their own uh, um, ideas, what they imagine, that it's hard for them to see the reality that they're creating, that they're living in. So I just, I'm just gonna jump and say quickly my thoughts about the Trump administration um, saying that it recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. This may be um, glib or, or, or not well-founded. I don't think it matters very much. Um, I think life in that city 
has been contested and very difficult for Palestinians. There's such a drive and an impulse by Israelis to dominate and subjugate that's been so prevalent for, for f more than 50 years. I, I think the, um, the impact of the U.S. making that decision, which I think the whole world recognizes as being erratic, irresponsible kind of decision, it, it, it reinforces the Israeli um, expectation that they're going to be able to continue that. Um, but I think, I perhaps have some kind of faith that ultimately something else is going to kick in and change what happens on the ground. The Palestinians are tremendously tenacious and um, I think politics is very, uh, what's the word for it, like mercurial. Things can go this way, things can go that way. Policies change, governments change. So I don't see that itself as such a great um, kind of sea change or a precipitous uh, new kind of circumstances that we're in. I think it's actually like just a, an incremental continuation of what's been going on really since 1948. And I, just in the interest of time, I'll wrap up my, my presentation right here and with great interest look forward to hearing from Fadi and from Idris. My name is Michael Welch and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Today, as part of our summer series, we're airing a talk at the University of Winnipeg presented February 28, 2018, entitled My Jerusalem, Responding to the U.S. Embassy Announcement. The event showcased speakers representing Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, speaking to their personal connections to Jerusalem and their appraisals of the implications of the U.S. administration's announcement to move its embassy there. Idris El-Bakri is a Palestinian who was born and raised in the holy city of Jerusalem. He moved to the U.S. after high school in pursuit of higher education and settled in Winnipeg with his family in 2005. What follows is an excerpt from his presentation. The Jerusalem of my past is the Jerusalem of the first intifada. When that took place, I was in my early teens. So we were... Uh, couldn't go to school for, for many, many months. Um, there were many strikes. The youth and the army would clash regularly, almost daily, and there would be casualties almost daily. It was a time when we couldn't afford many things. Um, we lived off of our savings as a family, and it was a time when the Israeli army had the, the policy of breaking the bones. I, I, I remember very, very clearly the, the footage of the army capture some Palestinian uh, youth and basically using rocks to break to break their the bones in their shoulders. And probably it was the Intifada's fault that I'm here today because um, as I finished high school, the Intifada was still active and the universities were shut down, and so I had to basically travel abroad to seek higher education. But the Jerusalem of the time also was a Jerusalem of hope because I think we had a lot of hope that the Intifada was going to lead to some sort of peace settlement. Um, it was a time when the Israeli peace, peace movement was quite active, uh, and we had hoped that 
this would lead to two states with Jerusalem as the capital uh, of Palestine, or East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. And it was a hope that through a historic compromise, by giving up the dream of, of all of Palestine, we'd at least save some bits of it, or some remnants of it. So the Jerusalem of my past is the one that I decided to leave and very much hoped to return to. It's a city that I deeply loved, but I think later on I realized that I also somewhat resented because it, wasn't, it was not a happy place. It just was not a happy place. Um, so that's about, what about my present? It's a city that I can visit so far. And that could change after tonight. Um, that's why I wasn't sure about this video recording thing, but anyway. <laughs> But I cannot live in, and I can't live in it because my wife is from Hebron, she's from the West Bank, um, and is not allowed into Jerusalem, except through special and short-term permits. This is where my neighborhood has been divided uh, in half by a concrete barrier which divides families and communities. This is where this, in the summer, um, in this, this summer I was, I was too young to be allowed to worship at the Aqsa Mosque. I had to be over 50. I'm getting there, hopefully. Um, it is a city that is under the control of an oppressive matrix, um, which consists of checkpoints, fences, walls, military, military towers, and cage-like crossing points. The matrix also includes many other pressure points, from municipal taxes to house demolitions, lack of access to education, and housing. Um, my father resists in a very interesting way. He just doesn't pay parking, parking fees. Like, he's like, I'm not going to pay parking fees to the Jerusalem municipality. So he actually fakes them fixes the sticker and puts it on his and gets away with it. It's amazing. So you know, people find ways of resistance. You know, he's, he's in his 70s, so this is appropriate for him. Um, <clears throat> um, but what used to be the city of Al-Quds, um, or the holy city, uh, or Arab Jerusalem, has been turned into ghettoized and impoverished neighborhoods, separated from their natural continuity in the West Bank by the wall and from each other by a strategically placed network of roads and highways often built on confiscated lands. But also, again, a city of hope. Um, because I think people are rediscovering their own power. Um, and I had a chance to witness this this past summer when I was there visiting, when really so we saw an unparalleled act, uh, actions of civil disobedience and uh, peaceful protest when the Palestinians of Jerusalem, Christians and, and Muslims protested security measures that were going to be imposed on Al-Aqsa Mosque. And in their thousands held vigils outside the mosque, refusing to enter it under Israeli, uh, under the new re imposed restrictions. Um, and though in those crucial weeks of July 2017, a sense of community was, was emphasized, solidarity, um, and yes, accomplishment. And I really can't think of a time when the Palestinians pushed back to a point where the government of Israel would actually retract and um, um, take a step back. So this brings me to the future. Uh, the Jerusalem of my future may not be free. I don't think I'm young enough to see it as a, as a free city. Um, but I think it will be a city of resistance and resilience. It will be a city uh, of self-reliance, of community. It will hopefully de deprive the occupier of his, of his, of his power. Uh, through the power of, again, of peaceful protest and civilian non-cooperation. Um, it will have friends, it will have allies, it will inch ever closer towards its freedom. So we have to be thankful to President Trump, because he brought us together. <laughs> a 
I mean, otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. Uh, and, and so bad people are so good at bringing good people together. It's just amazing, right? <laughs> and the Palestinian novelist Ghassan Kanafani wrote, uh, Miracle is that, you know, strange, un unlikely um, uh, uh, birth uh, that comes from the womb of, of tragedy. So from the womb of tragedy, we were here. Um, so hopefully, um, um, this is a good thing, so maybe we should thank him. But anyway, his, um, his announcement, again, won't change much. It will embolden, uh, if anything, the occupation, but it will also hopefully embolden us uh, to come together and stand together. So finally, I'll just conclude with quickly on, on you know, what sort of Muslims believe about Jerusalem. Um, when the Muslims first com were commanded to perform five daily ritual prayers, um, if you see Muslims pray, they kind of stand together in, a, in, in rows and lines and, and pray in one direction. And that direction used to be the direction of Jerusalem initially, of Al-Aqsa Mosque. And then that direction was later changed to, to the mosque in Mecca. Further, Muslims believe that the Prophet Muhammad miraculously traveled uh, overnight from Mecca to Jerusalem. Uh, and was greeted at Al-Aqsa Mosque, or by the, at the site of that mosque, by the prophets who came before him. Uh, from Adam uh, through Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Jesus, and, and many others, uh, and he led them in prayer. And this demonstrates that Islam looked at itself, looks at itself as an affirmation of the previous traditions, but at, this, at the same time as kind of a charting a, a, a different course and a unique course. Um, but so Jerusalem would symbolize for us um, the capacity of different faiths, different prophets to come together and, and coexist and thrive in a relationship of, of mutual support and understanding, and as we say in Islam, and God knows best. Thank you. The final speaker was Fadi Inab, a Palestinian Christian born and raised in the Middle East. He teaches a course on migration at the University of Winnipeg. He holds an MA in sociology from the University of Manitoba, focusing on the history of police violence against indigenous peoples in the Canadian provinces and informally volunteers in the community and is an advocate for and with newcomers and migrants. So I'm born in Dubai uh, to a Palestinian Christian Arab father. Uh, my father moved from Jordan but before that he's, he's born in Yaffa, 1946. Before Israel existed, there was a British mandate of Palestine in 1948, what they call independence. My father's family, my grandparents, got the shaft. They became Jordanian citizens. After 12 years, he moved to uh, the Emirates for oil. It's like moving to Calgary here. Um, um, so yeah, getting a call and your dad answers it. His dad died and he can't go see him. 15 years before that, his mom dies and he can't go see him. So as a child, you grow up with your father's social illness um, in the form of addiction to substance use, in the form of family separation, in the form of living away from home with limited rights, with limited mobilities. Uh, I'm born in Dubai, but I'm not a citizen of Dubai. They don't give me passports, so I can go visit my family. I can't go, uh, at least part of my family. My family got fractured. My mom is in Dubai and my dad is in Jordan. 
after 50 years of living in Dubai, he gets kicked out because you, if you don't own a business, um, you're supposed to retire somewhere else. So even though a lot of the Palestinians built a lot of the Gulf countries, we have limited rights. So yeah, I might blame Israel today, but I'm also blaming the Arab countries. I'm also blaming the US, Canadian imperialism, etc. cetera. Uh, so don't think I'm just taking one side here. But you have questions that you can ask me about anything. But, um, but yeah, watching my dad's issues, trauma, dispossession, isolation, uh, and now you study about indigenous people's experiences in Canada, you see a lot of affinities and a lot of misrecognition of those realities. Um, so responding to the US embassy announcement, what that also they're trying to imply is after announcing this, that uh, Jerusalem is uh, the capital of Israel, they're planning in the summer, this summer, to move the embassy, uh, the US embassy to Jerusalem. Um, this coincides with the 70th anniversary of the Nakba. So it's, uh, um, when you lose your land, you lose everything, and then you lose an icon of your, the heart of your city. Uh, so in a sense, it doesn't mean anything because colonization is ongoing regardless of Jerusalem. But at the same time, it means everything, literally everything, when a heart of your city, the body, uh, is eroding. Um, it's not a surprise that Trump came into power. Some of you might be surprised, but it's a settler colonial context. You'd expect that out of a settler colony that excluded indigenous population and had slave owners, a very proud slave owners. And I don't think it's about Israeli influence over the US on its own. That sounds too conspiracy for me. I think there's a lot of movement within the US, within Canada, that supports settler colonization. And they see it as a continuation across the ocean, across the common wealth or common poverty. Depends how you see it. But yeah, it's a time of mourning, a time of reflection, a time of rage to being angry about the continual injustice. Intifadas happened usually after the talks don't work, after um, intense feelings that needs are unmet. So we can expect maybe that maybe there's another intifada happening. A third, fourth, fifth, sixth, until this injustice ends. That doesn't mean that you promote violence. You promote peace, but peace can be interpreted as violent if it's against a moving train called colonization. Um, so I think Trump's announcement also kills the two-state solution. Um, as the history showed here, that the two state was supposed to be shared with Jerusalem being an international zone. So now when you're not sharing that, it really kills the two state solution. It, but you could already argue that it was already dead when you look at the walls and all the other policies. Increasing settlements, limited rights for Palestinians, etc. But what he's making now is a one-state assimilative model. 
what we should be looking for is, I don't care if it's a one state, three state, two and a half state, as long as each, every citizen is included. Your civility is respected. Your dignity. Um, so I think the issue is liberation from Israel, but it's also liberation too to self-determination, to a nice open road that is inclusive for everyone. So there's some demands that people around justice call for. Palestinian right to self-determination. Sounds familiar, indigenous self-determination. Decolonization. That means ending occupation, ending checkpoints, ending the colonies, the settlements, dismantling the apartheid wall. And some people say, are even saying that the apartheid is not even an accurate description because we even exceeded it. South African apartheid, at least it's rationalized using the people. We're trying to push the people out. And if we don't push them out, we kill them while they're there. If it's not physical, it's through social death. You don't talk about your culture, you don't talk about your background. I'd love to sit, have coffee with my grandparents before they died. I'd love to know about their history, their parents, their generations. But it, my history is neutered. I just know certain things. Uh, what's been said, uh, what I know about Palestine is from the outside. I'd love to go like you tourists. Um, my other demands is the full equality of Arab citizens of Israel, because we continue to push them away. Not just those in the West Bank and Gaza and outside, but also the one in Jerusalem. Which brings me to the outside now, the right of return for refugees. The more you keep them out, the more they're gonna increase. So if you think it's already too much and it's gonna change a demographic shift, but you can control people regardless of the demographics. There's a lot of minorities out there who control power. You don't have to have just the physical bodies. It's also about what power you have. We need to end settler violence across our borders from Canada to the Huta, the deaths in Syria today. It's continuing before it Iraq, Jerusalem, all those nice Arab cities, um, it's a replication and it's hard. What unites us with the newcomer Syrians is about mourning and loss. I hope it also becomes about return and love. And uh, not that we don't have that, but we also want justice. Um, and must to be open to difference, regardless of faith as long as it's open to land, relationships with the Creator, with others, to be open to difference. Not just about what you wear and what you do, what you practice, but also how you feel to the land, to injustice. To end there, I just have three letters. BDS. Boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel until the colonization ends. Um, if you think 
it's just why is it just Israel? Then I'll also be the S Canada until indigenous people have self-determination here. But I, I'm not sure how most Mennonites feel about that one. But you might be good with Palestine, but I hope you're good also with the indigenous people. And speaking of good, I hope you realize that what killed the Jews weren't the bad people. It was good people. The banality of evil that Hannah Arendt wrote about. It was so widespread that it seemed that it was business as usual sometimes. That's what we should be really careful about, to stop normalizing oppression. We just heard presentations from Rabbi David Mifaser, Idris El-Bakri, and Fadi Inab at the event My Jerusalem, responding to the U.S. Embassy announcement from February 2018. The moderator for the evening discussion was Joanna Hebert Bergen, MCC representative for Palestine-Israel. She reads a few questions from the audience to the panelists. Here is an excerpt from the evening's Q&A discussion. Question number one. Do you believe Trump's decision is, a, is, a pos, is positive as it removes the charade of the peace process? Who would like to tackle that question? Sure, if you're optimistic and you want to see something positive in everything in the world, then I would say yes, because <laughs> at least now I don't have someone hiding behind sheep's clothing, and he's a wolf, and we call him a wolf, and so that's what a wolf is, and whatever those, so yeah. So I could say yes, it can be positive, but at the same time it's so negative when there's all these extreme elements in society, and now you have someone giving them horns and whistles and guns and bullets, even the school teachers apparently need to hold guns. God forbid now a Palestinian kid with a kafiya walks to school and someone thinks something of them. Um, but yeah, I succinct. I think it may have, it may have uh, helped in one way in that it, it just, you know, you know the, the Naked King story, right? So it had just show, exposed the nakedness of the Palestinian leadership. That because was my Mahmoud next question. Um, what about Abbas? So yeah, I mean, um, uh, sorry guys, if you get offended the fact the, to the Palestinians here, but uh, I mean, Mahmoud Abbas has been basically for him. It seems that negotiations is the strategy. Just just negotiate. Just get invited to the table, and that's 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 not working. And I think even he now is saying, and I don't know if he's just it's just, just rhetoric probably, but that you know the U.S. is no longer an honest broker. I don't think it ever was an honest broker, to be to be true, to be honest with you. But um, I think it has just exposed the Palestinian street, the, the, just the reality that, that we're stuck, we're stuck, and we have also work to do on the inside mm -hmm. to sort of bring forth uh, a different leadership, young leadership that's committed, that's authentic, and that's not that's not beholden to, to the interests of the Israeli occupation. In fighting settler colonial attitudes in both Canada and abroad, how do we educate without alienating? That's also one of my burning questions. Fine, I'll, I'll fill up the silence without monopolizing discussion and the mic here. You start as young as possible and you make sure that the education is there even after you die. That means there have to be archives of memory 
archives shared by the public, not by state narratives that continues to promote justice and inclusion. If it's about education, then you need to include lived experiences of those who suffered the consequences, not in a superficial sense, but in an empowering sense. And to recognize that every one of us have responsibility. A, a moving train that's going to come and You can't be neutral on a moving train that's going to a violent place. You either stop it, but if you're just sitting on it, it, it you're, you're complicit. Um, so back to the education, that yeah, it, it needs to be throughout all society, throughout groups, um, and have more of the voices represented. Um, yeah. How do you? I just I, I, I don't have any brilliant ideas, but I think you gotta take the risk of alienation of alienating people. Mm -hmm. you just, we gotta you stand like you gotta, gotta have some some stamina. I think um, <laughs> Canadians are nice people. <laughs> they don't want to offend, but I think um, sometimes you have to be able to be willing to offend somebody because they just won't see the truth. I think we we do ourselves a disservice. In, you know, a lot of good people have very like a, they're secret they're secretly pro-Palestinian, <laughs> right? The, like the closet Palestinian, right? They they just doesn't come out because they're afraid of offending Jewish friends or or maybe church friends or or what have you, and maybe also afraid of being labeled anti-Semitic, which is which is a serious charge. And um, but I think we've got to get out of this sort of. It's like it's not. This is not about two cousins who are having a fight, and you're just saying we're both good cousins. You're like there, there is asymmetry here. There is power on one side. There's there is um, dispossession on the other, and we've got to say call it what it is for for us to be able to start to even educate people to try to say yeah they're they're both you know about the same. We just got to get them to play nice. I think it's there's a lot more to it than that. Thank you. Yeah. So just hearing that question, what what would alienate someone? Why would they be alienated? And I think to, to blame people or to talk about people as being guilty would alienate them. They'll make it really hard for them to listen to the message. So I wouldn't want to blame people, but to talk about people's responsibility is different than their blame. Like not, I, I feel like in a society like we live in, we are all responsible. We're not guilty. I don't feel like I'm guilty of, like you've referred many times, the treatment of indigenous people in Canada. I, I'm not guilty of what goes on, but I'm responsible for what goes on. So, so I, would, I would try to create education um, that, that would hold that distinction between um, guilt and responsibility. And another thing, I just think so much education comes from like lived experience and try to create experiences for people or highlight experiences for people where you're, you're living in the world that you want to have exist and enable people to experience that uh, more so than talking about it so much. Thank you very much. Um, just a minor point, I mean, I, I share responsibility like David, but I mean, I also share the guilt. So I do feel I'm guilty to what's happening to indigenous people. As a newcomer settler, I'm also guilty. 
I lost my land and now I have a home and I'm paying taxes and I'm having pension and all that jazz. Like, so I am guilty because there's indigenous people who are homeless, who are dispossessed, like my own, some of my own family members back home. So in that sense, I am guilty and responsible for what's happening here too. Um, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm the one who originated the guilt, but now I kind of share it by default. Um, that's why it's important to be clear about our land here, not just over there. Some of us escape the inner city here to fly over east and solve other people's problems, but we should also solve the problems here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you. We just heard audio from the talk, My Jerusalem, Responding to the U.S. Embassy Announcement, recorded at the University of Winnipeg's Eckhart Gramate Hall Auditorium on February 28, 2018. Speakers were Esther Eptison of the Mennonite Central Committee, Rabbi David Mivaser, Idris El-Bakri, and Fadi Inab. The audio of the talk was recorded by videographer Paul S. Graham. The unabridged video recording can be found on the Paul S. Graham YouTube channel. Music was by Purple Planet Music. More selections are available at the site www.purple-planet.com. The Global Research News Hour will return next week with more special summer programming. My name is Michael Welch. <laughs>